This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of my podcast. I am going to have a very special guest with me, Baratunde Thurston, uh, will be joining me on this podcast. We're going to talk about a number of, of things that I think you'll find interesting. Before we get started, though, I, I want to thank you for all the feedback uh, that you sent to me on the episode, episode 192, uh, this past week with uh, film director Raul Peck, uh, the director of I Am Not Your Negro and the new film Exterminate All the Brutes. Um, if, if you have not seen this documentary, it's on HBO, uh, HBO Max, um, HBO On Demand. Uh, if you don't have HBO, um, maybe uh, try to get a free trial for 30 days just so you can watch this. And then make sure you uh, unhook the trial so you don't get charged any more money um, or any money at all. Exterminate All the Brutes. I'm telling you, my friends, this is an amazing documentary. I encourage all of you to see it. Um, and I wanted to, if you don't mind, just uh, occasionally we have a little mailbag segment here of Rumble uh, where I read uh, some letters from some of you. And I'd like to kick today off uh, just for a few minutes uh, to share uh, uh, some of these wonderful emails uh, that I received at mike at michaelmore.com. That's my email address. Um, so, Let's kick it off here with Wendy. Wendy wrote, Michael, I can hardly breathe watching this documentary, but I will finish it and then I will watch it all again. That is the best way to see a great film. And yes, it is hard to breathe while you're watching it. And uh, But um, sometimes we have to keep our eyes open and we have to be shown those things that that the system didn't want us to see while we were in school or or after school, in the media, whatever. Uh, Jane from Paris, France, wrote to me, and she said, I finally watched the film. It was magnificent and horrifying. One day, some years ago, while walking in Paris, we came upon a poster for a film by Raoul Peck, and my friend said to me, I love this man. He's the most important filmmaker of our time. It was a moment well-remembered. So thanks again, Michael, for recommending that I hassle with HBO to see film. All the best, Jane. It's wonderful. Good luck. And thank you for figuring out from France how to, how to break into HBO. Joe is next. Joe wrote me and he said, Hi, Mike. I just wanted to thank you for the interview with Raoul Peck. I started watching Exterminate All the Brutes shortly after listening. It is perhaps the greatest and most tragic moment in history when the Europeans decided that a person of color was a brute and one that merits continued examination. Mark Twain's essays on the issue, which were not published in his lifetime, are as timely today as ever. I agree with that. Peck's and your work are also so incredibly incisive. I only hope the audience continues to grow. Yes, I do too, and I think it is. So thanks, Joe, for that. Rob from Tennessee says, Dear Michael, I wanted to write to tell you how much I appreciate you and especially your conversation with Raoul Peck, which I listened to this morning. I watched uh, episode one of Brutes last night, and it's truly a masterpiece, and I look forward to watching the rest of it in the coming days. It is difficult to explain the range of emotions I am experiencing on this Memorial Day morning and at this moment in history. I'm a white male, two weeks younger 
than you are, Mike. And I'm consistently reminded and appreciative of how similar our sensibilities are. I can't tell you how comforting it is to have someone like you and to know that my intense feelings and love of country, or at the very least what it aspires to be, are matched by others. Especially true while living in these times, watching the convulsions of our right-leaning friends as they deal with the truths and lies battling within their subconscious. I was struck and overcome with gratitude by the generosity of Mr. Peck to show us a different path and for you to show us how to listen, act, and reconcile. Thank you, Michael Moore. That's very sweet. Thank you for saying those things. I'll make sure Raul hears this. Christiane in Pennsylvania says, Hi, Michael. I really enjoyed your conversation with Raul Peck. I got a one-week free HBO Max trial to watch. Yes, good. Part one and part two so far. Freaking wow. Shocking and hard to watch. Rich in every way. Brilliant. I've learned so much that I didn't know or understand. I'm a French-Canadian. I live here in Pennsylvania, and I've been here since 1997. Racism permeates everything here. Lately, I've been thinking, what the hell have I done coming here? Oh, oh yeah, I hate the cold. Okay, we well, didn't go far enough south if you're just in Pennsylvania. I feel like going back to Quebec, but I have two young kids who consider themselves Americans. So I'm stuck. But I made damn well sure they got Canadian citizenship. <laughs> always a plan B, my friends. Thank you for all that you do with genuineness and passion. I'm glad I caught this podcast in time. I will watch Raul's other films. Take care, Christiane. And then finally, Mary from Reno says, Michael, I just finished watching I Am Not Your Negro. Amazing work, profound and painful. Wow. Hey, everybody, thanks for all your feedback. I love getting your letters. You can email me at my email address. Yes, it is my address. I read my own emails. Now, I'm not able to respond to hundreds or thousands of people, so please understand that, but I do read them. Uh, and you can write me at Mike at michaelmore.com, mike at michaelmore.com. And as I said at the beginning, I'll be chatting in just a couple minutes with comedian, writer, thinker, podcaster, Baratunde Thurston. But first, I want to thank the underwriters who have made today's episode possible. And the first one I want to thank today is Gabby. Uh, Gabby, uh, it's G-A-B-I, is not an insurance company. Uh, Gabby is here to help save you from giving too much of your money to insurance companies. I'm talking about auto insurance and, and homeowners insurance. And you know what Gabby means? It means get a better insurance. Gabby is a free service and it's easy to use. You enter your current insurance information to get started. And in just a few minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. Gabby gives you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. People write and they say, I saved $700, I've saved $800, I've saved $900. Some people have written to say, hey, I'm glad I, I took the, the test there with Gabby because I found out I'm actually paying the right amount at, at my insurance company. And you get to learn that too. But you have a good chance of saving some money here by just letting Gabby find out if what you're paying now is right 
or if it's wrong. So this is a totally free service and there's no obligation. So go to gabby.com slash rumble. That's G-A-B-I, Gabby, G-A-B-I dot com slash rumble. I also want to thank our other underwriter today, and that's Raycon. So I'll say this. First of all, one of the best things about being vaccinated is it's been thinking about all the places uh, that I can now visit where I can go. Even if it's just a walk in the park, a ferry ride across the river, uh, maybe even a, a trip. Uh, back home to Michigan, which I'm planning here very soon. Whatever it is, work, play, just getting out of this uh, pandemic. A lot of us are going to be on the move again, hopefully as early as this summer. And one of the things I'll be taking on my trip back home will be my Raycons, these wireless earbuds that not only fit my ears <laughs> really well, better than anything I've I've tried before, but also just because the quality of it is so cool. So whether you're listening to podcasts or music, maybe even meditating, a pair of these Raycon wireless earbuds provide the crisp, powerful beats at half the price of these other premium audio brands. And Raycons are also built to last for a 24-hour battery life too. So you can get through the day, the night, the whatever, long road trip, and they don't need to be recharged. So Raycon, for those of you who are Rumble listeners, is offering 15% off all their products. And here's what you've got to do in order to get the discount. You just have to go to buyraycon, that's B-U-I, buyraycon.com slash rumble. Got to put that in there. And you'll get your 15% off anything that you want to purchase from Raycon. So buyraycon.com slash rumble. Tell them. Uh, that you're grateful to for supporting Rumble. Okay, so we're back here. And uh, you've heard me discuss for years how civics is no longer being taught in many of our schools and how now generations of Americans are going through our educational system, not learning about the active role they're supposed to be playing as citizens in a democracy. Well, this has just driven me crazy for a long time. And, you know, obviously, you know, when I was growing up back in the day, you had civics class, you had government class. And in, in my high school, student council was actually a class that you got credit for. So you met every day as the legislative body for the students in the high school. So I was, I was like, fully immersed in the concept of learning about how government works and what our, your, my role is in it. But as I said, none of this is an accident. I think that the fact that we've, we've sunk to this low point now, the corporate powers that be uh, would much rather have a passive and uneducated society that follows its rules with no questions asked and not knowing what questions to even ask. And so for the past few decades, the American people have been trained to be consumers rather than citizens. Well, today I am joined by a guest who, like me, wants to change that. And he has become a forceful advocate uh, for making sure that young people, students, learn how our government works and how they can be part of it. Baratunde Thurston 
is my guest. He's a writer, a thinker, a public speaker. He's also a comedian. In 2012, Baratunde published a satirical self-help book entitled How to Be Black. With the lack of civics in our schools, though these days becoming such a problem, and generations of Americans not being taught the tools to participate in our democracy, Baratunde has now found a higher calling. He has started a podcast. So it's uh, it's with great pleasure uh, to have him here uh, today. His podcast is called How to Citizen. It's a great title. How to Citizen with Baratunde Thurston. And I'm pleased to welcome Baratunde to Rumble right now for the first time. Baratunde, welcome. Welcome yourself, Michael. Rumble, young man, Rumble. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Oh, thank you for that great setup. Oh, no, no. It's all, I'm so, I've been listening to your podcast and it's such a, you know, for all the uh, complaining, all of us are doing all the, <laughs> all the criticizing, all the, always pointing out to you what's wrong. Baratunde does the very important second step of pointing out what's wrong. He gives concrete ideas and actions for how we can make it right. And, and so, Baratuni, thank you for that. I mean, it's really hopeful and inspiring uh, to listen to you on your podcast. Yes, mission accomplished. That's exactly, that's exactly what we were going for. We are so aware of the ills and oh, are there ills, <laughs> but it's also necessary to remember what world we're trying to build. And we have glimpses of it today. There are people building it. There's folks who are restoring democracy and empowering the people and creating an economy that actually works for regular folks and uh, we should just follow their lead so our show helps us all do that showcases people doing the work gives us a way to contribute to it and we try to stay hopeful and uh, aspirational Mm -hmm. in times that often feel quite the opposite yes well um thank you for doing that you know often like if I'm on a guest on a podcast or a show or whatever, and I'm introduced and I'm described as an activist, and I always um, politely correct uh, the person introducing me, I said, "Thank you for saying that." Yes, uh, but I, I am. But but when you live in a democracy and you call yourself a citizen of a democracy, that automatically implies you're an activist because if mm. you're not active as a citizen then you're not a citizen of a democracy because the democracy will not last if you're sitting it out on the bench, if you're Ab- ignoring what's going on, right? So, yes. I, so I, it's enough to, to introduce me as a citizen of this democracy mm-hmm. that implies, it must imply, it has to imply that I'm also an activist, as are you and you and you and you and you. That's the key to the whole kingdom, man, because it's not a kingdom. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. It's, it's, right. it's us. It's the people. It's the demos. It's we, the people. Literally, people power is how you kind of break down that old Greek word. And we got it. We've got the power. Um, and we've got to be active in it. You know, when my wife and I, Elizabeth, we architected what we thought the show should be. And we had to come up with some theories, some beliefs to kind of ground us before we just started making a show. We, we had, wanted some founding principles. And so we said, well, what do we think if we interpreted citizen as a verb and not just as a birthright, as something that mm. happens to you because of where your parents had sex and you were delivered, 
which is an accomplishment, but doesn't take much action on the part of the born. What if we interpret it as a verb and it requires you to do stuff? What would that be grounded in? And so we said, okay, you show up. That's number one. It's a participatory thing, active. And you invest in relationships with others because you can't do this stuff by yourself. That's the opposite of democracy. And you understand your power, which is voting, but also so many more things. And you work for the collective benefit, not just your own selfish self-interest, but a collective self-interest that mm. when you see yourself a part of that, it's not so much against your interests uh, because you're also part of something greater than yourself. Right, right. But right. that first step, that action, it doesn't move without that. And and I think a lot of us, sadly, I mean, you've been doing a lot of corporate, you know, anti-corporate work for quite some time. I think you understand this more than many people or more deeply than most people. I think we've been trained to feel powerless. And even in some of the rhetoric of our fellow activists, it's like, oh, those powerful people over there and then powerless people that we are down here. It's like, I don't think that serves us. I think right. in, a, in a proper democracy, all people have power. And so we have to right. remind ourselves of that and then behave accordingly. And those who don't want us to govern ourselves, those who, are what we call the powers uh, be, um, yeah, the powers that be, right? <laughs> Self-appointed uh, powers that mm -hmm. be, uh, because they've they've either held on to political power, or financial power, or whatever. But they want us to feel hopeless. Absolutely. They want the average uh, uh, citizen to feel that. I mean, that's why all those sayings exist. Don't you can't fight city hall. Don't rock the boat. Uh, mm -hmm. That, in other words, don't even bother because nothing is going to. It's exactly where they want us, and to especially in these times, to have us so demoralized. The more demoralized the public can be, the better off. You know, and 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 we can get into talking about this in a little bit because it's just. Yeah. I've I not talked about it that much on on my podcast, but I've now seen statistics and and data of how rich, how more rich the rich got. In the pandemic year here oh that, that k-shaped recovery oh yeah. my god oh <laughs> wow i mean but i was just i let me let me just start off because i i because i heard you um you tell this story of of you getting an early civics lesson at a very young age and uh and, and you know it it was the, it was the same with me as you know i was telling you beforehand about my mom taking us kids to this, the, our nation's capital and wanting to show us how our democracy worked. But you, um, on your podcast, told the story of your mother giving you a pretty tough civics lesson. Would you share that uh, with uh, everyone who's listening? Because I, I thought this was this would be a good place to start. My mother was Arnita Lorraine Thurston. She was born in 1940 in Washington, D.C., died 2005. She was an epic survivor uh, in a nation bent on her destruction as a woman and a black person all in one. And she grew. I got to witness a, a grown-up grow, which was a great privilege that she shared with me and my sister Belinda. She also had very high standards. Uh, she had kind of immigrant mom standards, even though she was born here. And so one day when I was very young, certainly under 10 years old, she told me that it would be my job to come up with a system that we lived under after democracy or capitalism had failed. 
that was it. That was the homework. She's like, if you wow. can figure it out. Maybe wow. you and your sister together can work this out. But I think I'm going to leave that one with you. <laughs> and? Oh, yeah. Working on it, man. I mean, run, feeling like so, I'm running out of time, quite honestly. Uh, uh, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure because there's a lot of signals that both of those systems we have come to rely on are on the ropes. Um, and there is, there is more good that can come, but I feel like we got to innovate quickly uh, given the situation we're in in the U.S. And, so, and beyond, honestly. So how quickly do we do that? And how do we do that in your mind, in the way that you, uh, yeah. that you often... Uh, especially on your podcast, you talk about this. I'm just, just share some of this with the people listening here. I, I think one of the devastating contributors to the weakening of our democracy is the collapse in trust. Mm -hmm. um, and, and much of it for good reason. Right? We have lost trust in major institutions from big banks to big Catholic churches to big pharma just big things, just big things. We don't trust it. You were big in front of it. Uh, people aren't really feeling it anymore. And uh, many of these institutions have proven themselves unworthy to maintain the people's trust uh, because they have kind of abandoned us or betrayed us in certain ways. But that lack of trust, it has a negative feedback loop where people who are hoarding power right now, they, they don't want us to trust, right? They get to destabilize the whole thing, get us to fight each other. And I think for us to, to do what needs to be done, which I will describe as restoring and expanding democracy, uh, requires us to kind of reset and engage in activities which can let us build trust again. In ourselves first, like in our own power and our capacity to claim our power in a democracy, to be heard when so many people are trying to listen, and then in each other, that we can do stuff together again. It's not just me versus you. It's me with you. And then we see some commonness in that. That's a lot of work. But I think if, if we recognize that trust building is a big part of it, um, and that we're not just trying to restore democracy, but we're also trying to expand it because the versions of democracy we've had have never been as full as it could be. Mm. For as long of a democratic right. history, small d, this country has had, it's never really existed. You know, we've never had the multiracial democracy that we have had the potential to. Because uh, for most of our history, many of our citizens, in fact, by some measures, most of our citizens couldn't participate in the democracy. You know, women couldn't vote for most of their time in this country. And that's damn near half the population. So mm -hmm. is it a democracy if half the population can't legally participate in this most fundamental act? We're unfinished. So, so we got to finish it. Um, and, and so I think as we are all, so many of us, and certainly the people who are listening to you are in an anxious state about mm -hmm. the state of our democracy. Yeah. I don't think it's enough to want to return to or restore, uh, go get the backup copy of the hard drive and put it back in place. We need to expand, you know, new hard drives, new servers, new capabilities. And, uh, and that involves building trust. And that involves a lot of us dusting ourselves off and doing stuff and recognizing that voting is great. If you can do it, it's a good job if you can get it. But if you're a child, you're not able to in this country. If you have right. a felony record in certain states, you're not able to. So let's not stop there. Let's also be informed about what's going on in our communities. Let's create, let's collaborate with each other again. Let's build some stuff together. Let's practice. And I think we're 
we're out of practice at democracy, Michael. Um, mm. And that is yeah. in part why we're losing it. Well, part of being out of practice is that we used to, when we were in school, we used to practice because we had classes about our democracy, about how to participate, about how it worked. Um, we knew we knew very early on what a filibuster was. And when I was growing up in elementary school and uh, junior high, high school, we saw the filibuster being used for extremely racist uh, reasons. So let's circle back to what I said about your podcast and, and your mission uh, to uh, bring civics back. I mean, I don't know the stats, but I have felt the effects. We live in the same country and we are weak in so many ways right now. I, I think of, uh, you know, what we're living in, we call it the democratic experiment. And I think a lot of us forget the experiment part. We're trying something. It, it is not the normal course of human events for people to govern themselves in such multitudes with such differences peaceably for extended periods of time. Mm -hmm. That's just not how our species has done things. So what we're, what we're attempting in the United States, sometimes doing, mostly trying, often failing, is novel. It, it's novel. We're still young at it, especially for a society of such differences, linguistic, ecological, ethnic, etc. We're trying some radical stuff, man. And it's pretty cool. Like if you just zoom out, you're like, oh, y'all are trying to a whole bunch of different tribes getting together, not constantly slitting each other's throats. Good luck with that. You know, you sure you don't want a strong man to just tell you what to do? <laughs> and we're like, no, no, we got this. We got a, a whole division of power situation with the executive and the legislative we got a free press to hold all these fools accountable. We got judges out here, you know, not fully. It's amazing what we set up. But part of what sustains it is that we are constantly committing and recommitting to it. We're, we're in a relationship with each other where we have to constantly renew our vows. Otherwise, we drift and we take stuff for granted. And we forget that this experiment is active, that you don't just say it and then coast for the rest of eternity. Oh, we said we were a democracy way back in 1776. We good. <laughs> we're not. We're not. We don't arrive, man. It's a constant journey. And um, I think a lot of us forget that. I think we have succumbed to incentives that make it easy to forget that. Now, I'll try to get specific on that because that's a lot of words. I get very frustrated when people get frustrated that folks aren't voting. I understand the temptation to just be judgmental and patronizing about it. People die for your right to vote. How come you're not voting? Why aren't you informed about your electoral choices? Maybe because I'm juggling three and a half jobs. Mm -hmm. Maybe because I don't have time to show up as an active citizen because I can barely feed myself and my kids. This is where our version of capitalism undermines our potential for quality democracy. And it's not just up to individuals to suck it up and walk it off and shake it off and all this nonsense. It's up to us collectively to kind of reset some things and make it more possible for us to do that recommitment. But I think, you know, to your question about civics education, we have dumbed ourselves down. And when we are in this experimental phase, it's not like we inherited this system from 5,000 years of tradition 
we're kind of making it up as we go along. Right. We borrowed a little bit from the Greeks. We borrowed a little bit from all kinds of traditions, some we haven't even cited. But we're also just improvising that the thing we commit to isn't blood and soil. It's this idea that we could have a democracy, that we could have a, an inclusive democracy, I think is the best version of it. And that means we got to know what that is. And a system of government by, of, and for the people requires the people to understand that system and to understand their power in it. And if you create a system where that's impossible, where only rich people can afford to engage in democracy, that ain't democracy. Right. Because that's not all the people. So we're off course. We've drifted. We've drifted from the beginning, but we're particularly askew right now. And I think we have a great opportunity. That's the good news. That's my positive spin on it. Great growth opportunity for democracy in America right now, Michael. Nowhere to go but up. You know, we have one whole political party committed to insurrection. And we got nowhere to go but up. Right. And um, it seems even though 11 million more people voted for Trump this time last year than, uh, than four years before that, it's still the majority of Americans um, agree on some pretty basic things where, oh, this you know, gets me. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I, <clears throat> I spoke actually to a high school class uh, today on a zoom. They let you, you know, talk to children. I know. I said the, fir- the first thing I said to the teacher was, are you sure you want to do this? Because <laughs> the grief you're going to get from what I'm about to say. Oh, I can't wait for the parent letters to <laughs> oh, roll I in. know. I felt so bad for her at the end of it. The first thing I told the students was that it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. Don't think if you got a bad grade on something. that That's the only way I learned how to make a movie because I didn't go to film school. So I had to shoot a lot of rolls of film and make a lot of mistakes before I figured out how to do it. And that that's sometimes our greatest teacher is is the mistake that we've made. Yes. And the key is not, not to make it again, to learn from it. But... Anyways, it, it, yeah, so what I was telling the kids uh, today is that, um, you know, it's, I have a lot of hope because of them. This, this generation that, uh, it's really a generation or two that, that we've raised, they're not like a lot of the kids were when I was growing up. Mm. Um, there is a noticeable lack of hate uh, of of homophobia of otherism, um, and it's. I'm not saying that they don't have uh, that there aren't young people that are serious white supremacists, but it has. I have noticed that um, we have we have a good go at it here because um, not only because these kids are so good and smart and they know what's what but also because the majority of our fellow Americans believe women should be paid the same as men. The majority of our fellow Americans, yes, (laughs) believe that climate change is real. The majority believe that the minimum wage should be at least $15 an hour, if not Marxists. (laughs) But every single poll shows what I'm saying here. So, so in some ways we don't have to convince the majority of Americans. They're already there. Do you know how easy that makes it for us to create change? Because let me tell you, Martin Luther King, Gloria Steinem, any of the, 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 the gang that at the riot at the, at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, listen, they did not have the majority of Americans with them when they no, were fighting and, for what they fought for. 
They they had yeah. the, the 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 American public is so slow to be convinced and to move toward the light, yeah, but somebody had to get it going. Somebody had to get it going, and um, and in some of them in their lifetimes they did not live long enough to see it going. But now now here we are. You know the majority of Americans believe that college should be free, that there should be free daycare for young children, that there should be, just go down the list. And yet, and yet we don't have these things. So, but the hard part, I think, is just convincing to turn somebody 180 from, you know, believing that there should even be a minimum wage law to actually agreeing, yes, it benefits everyone if people are paid a good wage because every boat rises then and the society is in better shape. And I love right. Yeah. And I, I just I mean one of yeah, go ahead. One of the things so I've a lot of companies in the past year I uh, needed a black person to talk to, and so they called me and they're like, Baratunde, please tell us how naughty we've been. Uh please tell us that we still have goodness in us. We'll pay you, just say something. And so I would do a lot of these race talks of mm. 2020-2021. And one of the things I try to do when I'm talking to a, especially white audiences about race is I try not to lecture down even though I do know more because I've been black my whole life and America has taught me some things and maybe hasn't taught some white Americans certainly taught us different things. Right. And I think I see a little bit more of a truth that many white Americans are having a delayed response to being exposed to. But I don't know everything about everything, certainly. And to try to build a connection and a relationship, I, I remind them and myself that I am a man and that I've inherited certain unearned privileges just because of the genitalia I was born into this world with. I didn't choose it. They chose me. I showed up and teachers listened to me more because I had a penis. That's just the fact. And maybe I'm good. I mean, I am good. Maybe I'm articulate. Certainly. I know how to weave a word or two. And more people paid attention to me and assumed I was credible because I was a dude. And I'm sure that has helped me out. That level of awareness, we all need something like that. We all need more of that, more humility to help us see what's possible. When you start describing how much we agree on things, how the majority believe X, Y, or Z, Yes, that's a massive accomplishment. Yes, that is huge, but it makes it all the more painful to me that we don't have those things. Mm. And it's not, I think the good news is we don't need a whole change in our values. I think mostly we need a system that lives up to our values. That's the good news. The bad news is we have majorities for healthcare, for sane gun regulation, or minimum wages and fair compensation and all this stuff. And we still don't have it because we live in a system of minority rule. We live in an imbalanced electoral construct with the electoral college. We got cattle in Montana getting more say than the humans of Washington, D.C. in terms of how we govern ourselves. All right. So things are out of balance and it's, it's frustrating. I mean, I'm inspired and excited. I'm also like angry and annoyed. Because I'm like, oh, we have come such a long way and just in terms of public sentiment, but our public policy isn't keeping up in, in so many ways. And I'm remembering, Michael, because I'm, I'm drifting a little bit. When you are talking about 
people agreeing with paying folks more, like get convincing people that it's kind of in my interest for you to get more money. That's kind of hard for Americans because we've been raised on this extreme individualism. Mm-hmm. The zero sum mentality as Heather McGee calls it in her super excellent book. Yes. But what I realized as a dude, when you talk about pay inequality, oh, if my wife gets paid more, that's more money for the household. Right. Right. It's not, oh, my wife gets paid more. I'm getting less money. There's no, no, no one's saying that. No one's saying reduce men's pay. They're saying pay women what they're worth, pay women fairly. And that money goes into households where guess what? Men live there too. Little, little boys who may become men live there. Yeah. And if that household has more resources, then that household is healthier. Now scale up the household to the neighborhood and scale up the neighborhood to the city, to the state, to the nation. Oh shit, if we pay women more, we could be a stronger nation? Well, I'll be. I, I, people love to talk about how great this country been. Oh, we went to the moon. Big whoop. We could have been to Mars by now if we paid women equally 100 years ago. More wealth in the system to power those rockets. Not waiting on Elon Musk to save us. Right. End of rant. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no. Uh, it's it. Listen, I just th- I was, I'm just thinking about you standing in front of a room full of uh, of uh, essentially mostly a white audience at uh, some company. In that moment, is is the sort of uh, I don't know if it's the inner comedian or the righteous citizen in you. Do you ever just feel like standing up there and saying? Get the fuck out of here. Just, just, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm, I have nothing more to say to you other than what are you going to do uh, to right this wrong? Yeah. To right this ship that we're all on because it's tilted the wrong way and we're going to, and we're going to sink as a result of it. I'm increasingly having those moments. I, I think, you know, I was born in 77, raised in the eighties in the crack wars in DC, started going to private school when I was 13 years old. And started getting acculturated to prestige in America, to a level of whiteness in America, which has made me quite a translator and able to navigate very frothy waters. And it's also made me super diplomatic to the point where I get to say things that a lot of black people couldn't get away with saying because I got a really dope smile and I can crack a joke to help it go down. (laughs) But there have been times in this past year where I've just I've had no diplomacy left. Yeah, none I remember speaking to a group of students myself and there were some parents on the line that were very uncomfortable with my remarks about the then president. Mm-hmm. And I just had to stop. And I said, listen, none of you want your children to behave the way the president of the United States behaves. And if they did, you would ground them, you would punish them, you would lecture them. You would not tolerate this in your own house why would you inflict that on my house? Right. Be real, th- don't lie to yourself. You know this shit is unacceptable. Right? That was just a moment. And they, j- they had nothing to say. What could you say? And then with the companies, I think a lot of these companies want to, you know, they want to post the right thing on Instagram. They want to do the right thing. They certainly don't want to lose their handful of black employees. But they have a choice to make in this moment of democracy. Are you going to fund insurrection? Mm. Or are you going to co-sign and invest in authoritarianism? Hmm. Are, are you going to become uh, a handmaiden to fascism? Is that what you're about? Because if you are, you should know 
they'll come for you too. Right. You think a nation built on the quote unquote rule of law, once it decides to discard millions of people's votes and overthrow an election, won't discard your property rights and your intellectual property claims as well? You think you're safe? Think again. If this thing goes down, we all go down with it. And so you got to come up off this whole, like, we don't get political bit. Oh, right. Yeah. You're pro-democracy or not. Yeah. That ain't a partisan thing. No. Sadly, it kind of is with this version of the Republican Party. But in the U.S. tradition, we should all be for that because that's what protects your ass. That's why you get to call the police. That's why you got roads you can drive your goods on. And that's why you have some security that your money in the bank is going to be there tomorrow. If you start chipping away at that faith and that trust, none of that's around. So that January 6th thing should have been the final wake-up call. We're not playing games. This is it. This is it. The alarms are ringing. You're not safe. And your lawyers won't protect you. Why have the Republicans, why have they shown their hand so clearly? It's stunning to me to see them just out front trying to make sure that tons of people are going to find it very hard to vote next year and the year and two years after that. Why are they showing such disdain and hatred for democracy? Not for the Democratic Party, but for democracy. It's, it's, I mean, I've always known that that's where their heart has been. Uh, they've always tried to suppress uh, the vote, but, but they're doing it so openly now and, and, and still following the former guy. And it's like, Part of me says, why are you trying to commit suicide as a political party? The other part says, maybe they know something I don't know. Maybe they got those 11 million extra votes last year for a reason, and and they'll get 20 million extra votes next time because they're so good at this. I don't know, but um, yeah. but my guard is not down. and It should not be. I have it no sense... Be. Uh, yes, it's great that, that he's gone, but um, anybody who's thinking that we're kind of home safe now is sorely, sorely misbegotten, and um, and it's dangerous to take that position. I think this Republican Party is a number of things. I think mostly they're cowards. Mm. I think they're afraid. Yeah, and I know fear. It can paralyze. It can move us to behave in ways that are not ourselves, cause all kinds of irrational behavior, cause us to harm ourselves and others because we're afraid. We're afraid of the truth coming out. We're afraid of getting hurt. We're afraid of losing something. And this Republican Party is afraid because it knows that on a level playing field, it will get its ass whooped right now, electorally speaking. That without the aid of the Electoral College and significant amounts of gerrymandering and explicit voter suppression, that the party of market competition and pro-capitalist free markets could not compete. Could not compete in a free market of ideas mm -hmm. right now. That's right. They're on the wrong side. Their product is garbage right now. Now, the system needs them, right? I, I don't like what they're selling. But we need competent products on the shelf to beat this metaphor into a pulp. 
right. or some kind of balance. Argument is healthy. Sure. No one has a monopoly on all the best ideas. But right now, these folks, they know and they have put themselves in this position that they're strongest with the fear-based vote. They're strongest with the aging, with the white, with the racist, with the afraid, with those who see nothing but loss in their future, a future where their numbers dwindle. Their imagination is so narrow, they can't imagine a multiracial America actually benefiting white people too. Because that's not the America they tried to build. Right, right. They assume you and I don't want to build that, include them as well. It's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. But I think they know one other thing, Michael. It's, it's not just the, the raw, brutal math of it. Oh, we've painted ourselves into a corner with this extremist base. They're afraid of Donald Trump. They're afraid of, they're literally physically afraid of his followers. You know, they don't, they saw that these folks were willing to try to lynch Mike Pence and they don't want to get lynched. That's a natural human response. I have a small amount of sympathy for that. Mm. But at the same time, they also know that for as much as they love to celebrate American exceptionalism, they understand we're not exceptional at all. We're just people. We're just people capable of anything. And we are capable of turning this democracy into a theocracy or an oligarchy or uh, an aristocracy or an authoritarian regime. And we can become Hungary. We can become Russia. We can become so many other countries that have flirted with democracy and then drifted. And there's power in that. And it's not just the leadership. There's a lot of people on the ground who are like, yeah, democracy, democracy. I just want to win. And I'm willing to cheat. And as long as I'm winning, I'll tell myself a story that I need to believe that it's the other people who are the cheats. It's the, it's, the, it's the dead black people voting. That's what the problem is. Our guy really won because the truth hurts. But I think they're partially right. I hope in the long term they're wrong that we won't continue to indulge them in this belief that we can just waltz into fascism. I, but they're, they're betting on enough Americans being cool with fascism. Yeah. And that's scary because... They kind of make it so by continuing to dally with it. You have a chance to do the easiest thing a politician should be able to do, which is say, hey, hey, uh, the U.S. Capitol, don't attack that. <laughs> like shit that shouldn't have to be said. It's a, it's a layup. It's an easy thing. We shouldn't do that. And they can't even fix their faces to say that. That's how afraid they are. And that's how tempted they are by the power which lay on the other side of that compromise. See, then what I think, and I, and I mean this in a very nonviolent way, that yeah. if, if they are that afraid, if their backs are against the wall like that, um, I think it's our duty as citizens to put an end to them, not them as people, but to their, to this kind of, this way of thinking, to this desire for fascism. I agree with you. I, I'm not. I would. I would be willing to say that maybe a third of the country, a hundred million Americans, wouldn't be unhappy with some form of fascist state. Uh, that, and we and we've had this in our history. And we right? have it in our history. And World I, War II, a hundred percent of Americans were not down with defeating Nazism. Right. We had huge Nazi rallies in this country. Huge. Right. Pro Nazi stuff. Madison Square Garden, full of Nazis. 
Right. We forget this or we're never taught it in the first place. But there's always a number of people in this country who are down to undo the democracy. Literally always have been here. But I also, I think there's a certain type of power which acts as like a gravitational pull on a people. And we lean toward, we bend toward the place where we think the power is. It happened to the Republican Party, right? They were at this fork in the road. After they got their butts kicked in 2012, they had this whole thing. We got to, we should start talking to black people. We should stop painting all immigrants as like terrorists. We should stop that. They had this whole autopsy. They called it an autopsy because they were dead. Right. And they could modernize. They could keep up with the change in demographics. They could catch up to the American people or they could go retrograde. And they saw the big crowds and the free media attention that the last president brought. And they're like, oh, that's, that's cheap fuel. It's dirty coal, but it burns. Let's get it. And they doubled down on some antiquated ass fuel source. The rest of us out here trying to float on electric hoverboards. And they're just spewing dirty, dirty coal smoke in everybody's lungs. Because it works for them. I think there's enough of us that believe in the clean fuel powered democracy that we can bend this ship, create a new gravitational pull to lure enough toward the better future. We don't need everybody. I love Biden's inaugural address. My favorite line about unity wasn't this Pollyannish simple idea that everybody has to agree all the time. Mm -hmm. He said, enough of us have come together to move all of us forward. Mm. That's all we've ever had. Right. We've never had 100%. We've had enough. Right. Just, we just right. need enough. Just right enough. Now. That's right. Yep. Well, I, I love listening to you and, um, and I love your podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Baritone Dave. It's been nice rumbling with you, Michael. Thank you so much. We must all be rumbling. And thanks to all of you for listening, for participating. It means a lot. There's so much going on right now. And uh, we all have a lot of work uh, to do together. But I, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, uh, but I know it won't be easy. And I think you know that too. So thank you for being here with me. And also thanks to my executive producer, Basil Hamden, to our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and to our underwriters and everybody else who have a hand in uh, making sure that uh, your voice, my voice, other voices are heard. It's uh, greatly appreciated. And I will see you soon here on Rumble. This is Michael Moore. It's going out to idiot America. Welcome to a new kind of tension. All across the alien nation. Everything is amazing.